Escape from Plan A. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, this is your host this week, Q, um, and this week we're joined by Mike. How are you doing, Mike? Good. Um, thanks. Happy to be here. For sure, for sure. Really enjoyed the last uh, episode we did on solidarity and organizing uh, in leftist spaces, and especially in Asian American leftist spaces. Um, and since you know we had so much um, kind of ground crossed when we were having that conversation, I wanted to kind of open up the space for this uh, book club that we're kind of doing on Escape from Plan A and some of our bonus episodes, uh, which our patrons receive when they contribute to our Patreon. Um, it's something that they'll also see within the uh, kind of one of the benefits of the Patreon as well is uh, a book club we're doing on a book called Ration Melancholia. So feel free to check that out if you want to contribute. Um, but this week, we're going to be talking about an essay called uh, A Critique of Ultra Leftism, Dogmatism and Sectarianism. And we're going to link that to the show notes as well. Um, and it's just an example of one of the papers we're going to be trying to read and discuss uh, to see how they're relevant to how organizing works, especially for Asian Americans. Uh, in this day and age. Uh, Mike, do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, who wrote this paper and how it goes about explaining um, this kind of elephant in the room for a lot of us, which is why the left and the West seem so damn weak, especially as we're watching you know, the fascist right kind of organize and mobilize so quickly on the front lines and how it seems like the left has been just outflanked entirely. Yeah, um, so a critique of ultra-leftism, dogmatism, and sectarianism was first published in January 1977 by an organization called Movement for a Revolutionary Left based in Eugene, Oregon. Um, a cursor Google search for this organization, nothing really comes up beyond the documents that they originally circulated and that Marxist.org um, has now archived, but... Mm -hmm. Um, what I did find out, though, is that they named themselves after the revolutionary left movement that was um, started in Chile, which was a far right, I mean, not far left, far left political organization, organization and former urban guerrilla organization. Um, so that's where those guys came from. But um, beyond circulating this document and another document that was essentially an obituary for the new communist movement um mm -hmm. i really couldn't find much about it but i stumbled upon it when i was actually looking for um anything mao had to say about sectarian sectarianism and dogmatism and mm -hmm. when i found this document i was like oh okay this might work but when i was reading it i was already in a very disillusioned state with the western left anyway and when Absolutely. I got into reading at first, basically everything I was reading about felt like I was, I was reading about what I was seeing now. So I wanted to die a little bit. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so when I first posted the link to this critique in a Facebook group called um, Socialism in the 21st Century, I recommended going into it with an optimist and solution-oriented approach. And it seemed 
pretty well received. Um, someone said it was helpful for them in reorienting themselves in that it helped them figure out where they're situated class-wise and how to overcome mental roadblocks when it comes to organizing. So mm-hmm. that's where I think um, this document is pretty helpful too. Um, in my opinion, this critique explains really well why the Western left is so weak compared to the right, which has been able to organize and mobilize very aggressively, because the right has really successfully united itself while the left remains fairly fractured. Um, you see all these like factions on the right popping up, but they don't really spend all that time like attacking each other or bickering with each other, you know? Um, they have all these different groups and like offshoots, but they pretty much have the same object- objective and they recognize it really well. There's really no such thing as having the incorrect line for them, as opposed to all these um, niche ideologies that we have in the left, you know? Um, I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, the left is always being called out for just like so much infighting historically and then even now. Um, and it's just really disheartening to see the right be able to consolidate power in such an effective and kind of seamless process. Um, so that's a really good point that you made. Yeah. Um, to me, I think the right has really learned to do very well with agreeing to disagree with each other. Um, mm-hmm. And at least it looks like that from where we stand. And then that also, I think that speaks to their ability to put up a united front. They you know, so the left doesn't really like that, you know, some people just have very irreconcilable differences with each other. And that gets in the way with working with each other. But when mm-hmm. you're, you know, when you're right wing, you're right wing, period. A fascist is the fascist. And like, another thing too, is like, when someone picks up a left ideology too, they sometimes don't really unlearn how to be a shitty person, you know. So then it's, <laughs> So then in some left spaces, right, we have a person that might be a sex pest or mm-hmm. they're like transphobic or something like that, you know, like on the right, things like that don't really have an issue. I mean, the right, you know, still knows where to draw the line with how they canceled Milo Yabadabadupolis or whatever his name is, <laughs> you know, because he was <laughs> because he was making apologies for pedophilia. But you know what I'm saying? Like to me, yeah. it, it feels like a very, very multi-layered issue where all the layers kind of like sink into each other. And mm, yeah, that's a really good point. The, the right really knows how to be uh, inclusive for better or for worse in terms of kind of the types of people that they're willing to accept within their rank and file. I guess that can kind of lead into uh, our discussion of the crux of this essay is uh, so they use these terms in the title of the essay, right? Ultra leftism, dogmatism and sectarianism. Uh, do you want to go ahead and just explain briefly what uh, each of those words kind of mean? And then we can kind of uh, dive in deeper to the issues uh, that are kind of inherent to each of those terms specifically. Oh, yeah. Um, so the critique itself, it calls those three terms the three principal banes of the revolutionary left. Um, to quote what they said about dogmatism, it's an error in the theory of knowledge. It is the advocacy of an analysis or strategy on the basis of faith, either in a source of authority or simply in a decision or assertion made without empirical justification and the consequent impermeability to change through the empirical disconfirmation of practice. How I interpreted this to mean is that like people will believe certain theory works, but only because it says so. It's the kind of error mm-hmm. that leads people to say X only works when Y is Z, or that 
because A supports B, that means B must be correct because A is always correct. It takes this mm-hmm. scientific nature out of Marxism-Leninism and disregards that theory and practices, and, and it disregards that practices have to play off of each other and you have to adjust and adapt to succeed, you know, like, where do correct ideas come from? Practice. Um, mm-hmm. And instead of an analyzing your situation and conditions, instead, um, someone will just opt to try and copy and paste what someone else has done, and they think it will work out for them. But, exactly. you know, it th- things are very different. Um, like, if you compare the revolution in Russia to the revolution in Vietnam, no way they're the same they had to go their own way the theory was still there but they had to practice it differently for sure and i think the example that they use an example that i think is extremely relevant to our time uh in the case of dogmatism is seeing these individuals who kind of lionize uh, china and the chinese revolution um specifically in the paper they critique of maoists for being especially uh, adherent to this kind of idea of dogmatism where they think that because the Chinese revolution was quote unquote successful, that we can just copy the strategies and the tactics that they used over there to try to apply them here. When uh, in reality, Maoist is almost like a, uh, like a, like a word that doesn't really exist. You know what I mean? Like Maoism is an interpretation of Marxist Leninism applied to the material and historical conditions of China during that time period. Um, so like to say that we should just copy what they did is to betray the kind of logic of Marxist-Leninism, uh, to, uh, to betray the logic of like the dialectical method of, you know, using your theory, applying it to the historical material conditions of your present, and then using practice to change the way that you look at your own theories. These theories don't just exist in a vacuum, you know, they have to um, be informed by reality, be informed by the people that you're surrounded by, be informed by the conditions that you're in. So that's that's a really good point about dogmatism for sure. Yeah. Um, and then they go on to talk about sectarianism. Um, sectarianism, um, the way they wrote it, it's a little similar to dogmatism. But what this results in is an inability to bring different factions and people together and unite in a common struggle against whatever the enemy at the time happens to be. An example I think of is when someone asked for my thoughts on whether the Yikmen um, was good because of all these disparate and even conflicting factions being brought together and my thought was why not i don't really care about ideological purity when it comes to something like that because they fought for vietnamese independence and something like that should be a cause all vietnamese can and should get behind no matter what um the correct line at that time was to lay down your life for people in homeland and defeat the french invaders and that's all that mattered to me i think about this a lot when people are fighting in the u.s um and they want like China and other socialist nations to like export revolution to them. And my thought is export to who? Mm-hmm. Like, who who would be receiving that kind of material support? And do they even deserve it? There are like so many revolutionary organizations doing work, but you don't really see a common thread between them. You don't see them uniting and like forming an actual front, in my opinion. You know? Um yeah, I mean, that's totally valid. Yeah, and when something like that has yet to be solidified, why should anybody be why should anybody be exporting revolution to them? Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And this is yeah. a point that's kind of echoed in um, William Way's uh, book, The Asian American Movement, which has a lot of problems in terms of like how he 
valorizes uh, reformers and people who kind of like work within the system. He spends a lot of the book critiquing um, like the Marxist Leninists of the Asian American movement, organizations like the Red Guard and Iwar Quen. He, he condemns them for, you know, being out of touch. But the point that he makes, uh, which is kind of a reflection of the objective reality or of the the kind of standard of whether or not those organizations were successful um, was that he saw that within them was this issue of sectarianism, right? He saw that they had uh, so much infighting about what the correct theory was and in, in trying to apply to their material conditions, that there was uh, so much kneecapping between the different organizations that they were never able to form um, a united front, which is a problem when you know, the FBI and COINTELPRO is trying to shut down revolutionary organizations that even approximate success. So the fact that they were kind of basically doing cop work uh, for the cops without being paid meant that they were going to always uh, kind of fall into this critique of sectarianism and harm themselves in being able to, you know, actually do something meaningful. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I think that I... I... It makes me think back to like at one point, um, I got into an argument with a right winger and it wasn't even so much an <laughs> argument because I was kind of just passively just listening to what he was saying. And basically he like identifies as a capitalist and all that. And he f- felt very unthreatened by whatever the left is doing because like mm-hmm. he looks, he goes into our spaces and sees all the infighting happening and like you know, supply chains and stuff like that aren't really being attacked, you know? So he has, he just feels nothing. He has nothing to worry about. And I really, Mm -hmm. I really wasn't mad about that at all because I I felt like that was a pretty correct thing to take away from that because, you know, like beyond symbolic victories, like pulling down statues, like what has the quote unquote left really done in the U S you know, like, I can think of like recently, like the NFAC came out, right? And we had like a massive wave mm-hmm. of armed people marching. But even then, had very COINTEL pro vibes, you know? Their ethos wasn't really that. Right. It felt, it felt very performative, very like almost co opted. Yeah. And then other organizations like Sleep is for the Rich Gun Club. Um, they're not, <laughs> they're not explicitly, you know, left leaning either. You know, they just, an organization coming out to protect their community and it made me think like hmm does it really need to be explicitly leftist for us to support them though because they came out because white supremacists were threatening people in the community and i think that's a exactly. pretty good cause to organize around you know like it made me think of it made me think of um how do I put this? Uh, I think I I made a thread um a couple of days ago about like I was noticing how in American society, because everything is becoming so ridiculously polarized, people are starting to have a trend of being afraid of politicizing anything. You know? Yeah, that's and totally fair. I think what the left should try and do is develop an agenda that seems neutral, but still fits within our lines. You know? Mm-hmm. But like. A normal people won't be able to pick up on that and when we help try to provide context and education to those people 
I mean, I, I think Vijay Prashad makes a really good point in his video. Uh, what is the meaning of the left? That the left and like communists in general need to be a lot more confident in their ideas. So I know exactly what you mean, right? Is that there's this like trend on, on the internet where you can like switch out a quote from like Lenin and say that Reagan said it. And then like a fuck ton of like old ass white people will agree because they're like, you know, caught up with the baggage of conservatism and, and, you know, the moment of the 80s where it felt like America was on top or whatever, American exceptionalism. But, you know, like, I think um, there's a really good point here, which is that the left needs to just be accepting of the fact that they have the right ideas, but they just need to find the correct way to convey them, um, which kind of dovetails into um, the last concept that is a major portion of this essay, which is ultra leftism. Um, which is kind of the opposite tendency, right? Is to believe that you have the correct ideas to the point where um, other people do not. You know, it's it's like um, a very a very petty interpretation of of uh, what these ideas are supposed to represent. Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, ultra leftism and how they can often result in things like uh, adventurism or you know, like a, a general disconnect from the needs and wants of uh, the working class? Oh yeah. So, um, yeah, the ultra left tendency is to view revolutionary conditions as more advanced than they are. So around the country, a lot of um, the ultra left tendency to look at these things is that they would think the masses are completely ready for revolution and then they're going to start calling for it and stuff like that, you know, but they act like people who in reality are not totally convinced of the need for revolution yet, that they think the opposite and they'll try to call the masses to do things that the current times and conditions don't yet call for. A lot of Americans mm. still don't, like they think things are bad right now, right? But they're not right. totally ready to overthrow the government. They're not totally ready to form their own third party and stuff like that you know it's still very much they still want to color inside the lines but the ultra left tendency to look at all this chaos happening around the country is that no these people are definitely ready let's you know do some kind of huge call to action and stuff like that <laughs> right they think that like if they give ak-47s to everybody who's like a like a working class person that the revolution will just kind of take on itself without recognizing you know the reality that the vast majority of people are much more willing to work with the system and to reform and to change things than to to overhaul the entire system completely. Yeah, um, people still really are convinced that, you know, the reform option still isn't a dead end yet. You know, people are still going to try and push and push for that. So until mm. something happens that really makes people see that, um, people aren't you know, are just aren't ready yet. And I really don't know what's going to make people see that because what are our options right now for the 2020 election? We've got a 74 year old <laughs> rapist and a 77 year old rapist. Like how is this not bad already? But then people are still trying so hard to push that line to vote Biden and be ready to hold him accountable. But it's, under absurd. A it's, it, uh, it's ridiculous. And under a Biden pre presidency, I feel like it's just going to be yet another rehash of the Obama presidency. Like a lot of us I know weren't that woke when Obama was president, but like all the things afterwards, we couldn't criticize him because of that legacy of him being a progressive president and stuff like that, you know, like 
it's like the veneer of not being a fascist is enough to absolve you of the actual like terrible things that you did in terms of domestic and foreign policy. It made him like immune to criticism. Um, but I mean, Joe Biden doesn't even have that. He has no like a legitimate policy agenda that any supporter can articulate besides uh, he's not Trump, which is just the same strategy that Hillary executed in 2016. The Democratic Party just thinks that they have like a monopoly of anyone who uh, isn't like a like a white um, gun toting like man, basically. And they assume that because we have material interests uh, that will be infringed upon that are threatened potentially by a, a Trump presidency that we have to look at their alternative, which is really not an alternative at all. Yeah. Um, and because people are still like stuck within that frame of either Trump or this person who at least isn't Trump, they're still stuck within that framework of like two absolutes. There's mm -hmm. really no room for movement further left yet because you people who criticize like liberals and establishment Democrats and stuff like that, you know, you either get accused right. of being in the center or you're a Trumper. And mm. people still aren't ready to break away from that kind of analysis yet because like, no, I have to tell people, no, I don't, I, I, I fucking hate Trump. You guys are actually to the right <laughs> of me, even if you are against Trump. Uh. Like, so if we can learn to gradually push people away from that mentality, then we're, then I feel mm. like we're going to make so ages more age ages more progress than if we just yeah. you know push for things where people are still stuck in that you know um mm -hmm. no that's totally valid and i think that speaks to something that was also written about in this essay is you know uh like these are ultra leftists right they think that the the revolutionary conditions are riper than they are without recognizing the reality of the world that's around them um, but then I guess that begs the question, which is something they also point to in this essay, is like, what does it mean to be a revolutionary? And especially, what does it mean to be a revolutionary when uh, it seems like the, the setting is not quite right yet? And they suggest that a crisis is uh, what is usually the circumstance that allows for a revolution to, uh, to occur. Can you, can you like, articulate what that means? What, are, what is to be done in a non-revolutionary setting to push people to be kind of in the consciousness to be willing to accept that reform might not be the answer anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, so what I've noticed, right, like, you know, from reading history and then looking at what's going on in the U.S. today, the U.S. is in a very, very unique situation um, where, you know, like, like we were talking about earlier, right, like things are bad, but people aren't ready to break away from a certain mentality yet. Um, mm -hmm. I think in the U.S., like even it needs to be, things need to be bad enough for like a significant amount of the population for people to start caring, because like the poor in the U.S., you know, shit has always been shit for them. Right. Um. So then, um, a crisis to me means that now the inherent evils and errors of the system we're living under needs to be laid bare and made clear for everyone that's been taken advantage mm -hmm. of not just right. not just the people who have been the most downtrodden you know 
And then when they can see that there's a way for all their needs to be met, I think that's when the U.S. can be pushed closer to revolution, I think. Because like right now, you know, some people, you know, they're not suffering as much as the next person. So they don't see how the system is downtrodding people. So until things get like super, super bad. And frankly, I kind of I kind of fear to try and stomach what what that kind of situation could be, because like right now, things already seem pretty bad. Mm. But but people still aren't ready. So as far as that goes, I don't know what it takes, but I know that it's going to be have to be really bad. Yeah, it's really tough to think about because, you know, um, as authors like Naomi Klein has written about and plenty others that in moments of like economic shock or in crisis, the the right has an exceptional ability to consolidate their power. And we see this with like the, uh, you know, the bills that Congress has passed to try to give like pennies to people for uh, what's going on with COVID. But in doing so, allow for some of the greatest wealth transfer into the bourgeois class that we've ever seen in the last like century probably so we're, we're watching mm-hmm. like fascism allow for these you know finance capitalists and these monopoly capitalists to consolidate power rapidly as um you know this crisis is supposed to produce quote-unquote revolutionary conditions so it's like a tough like contradiction to resolve like how do we square um the need for uh revolutionary conditions while also watching our enemies um this the powers that be consolidate the forces that we will eventually have to oppose you know it's a very tough question to think about which is why it's important to talk about things like uh, ultra leftism and specifically i think adventurism uh, which is a concept that they also speak to uh in this essay um do you want to talk a little bit about adventurism and how there's this kind of tendency amongst a lot of leftists to glorify things like uh like violence or to, to glorify you know revolutionary conditions when they aren't really ready yet oh yeah um they're very that kind of tendency it people very much like they have an obsession with doing things a certain way even though they've never tried it before and mm-hmm. you know i i think that like people you know we see how like the government is like trying to infiltrate left movements and its history of that and people will talk right. about how like infiltrators aren't usually the quiet ones. They're the ones that push for the greatest sweeping actions. And they try to like have all these grand call to actions and stuff like that. And I mm-hmm. think, and people, and they do that because they know that the vast majority, when someone finally does something that might be considered revolutionary or they do a great violent act or something like that, they're not going to have any backup with them. You know, they'll be singled out like right. the man who tried to bomb an ice facility. I think I don't know if I could call that adventurism. Maybe it could be considered mm-hmm. that, but when it happened, it was just one man that did that. Right. Where was his backup? Right. Where was the mass movement to support him and follow in his footsteps? You know, there really isn't mm-hmm. there. It was yet. almost it was like just, controlled opposition. Yeah. Um. So, 
these people, they don't really want to take things step by step, you know, like, you know how like a lot of people on the left, right? They mock China's like socialism by 2050, blah, 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 you know, that kind of deal. Right, right. But the concrete reality is that things need to be taken in a certain process. And if mm-hmm. you want to accelerate it, unfortunately, you still have to color inside the lines, you know, like you cannot advance until the masses are awakened. Mm-hmm. People aren't willing to take that step and unless a majority of people are willing to do that that's not going to happen and no matter how many calls to action you put out people have to come to that conclusion themselves right you have to you have to let people get there themselves um so i think that's the biggest part of adventurism to me like if you're not an infiltrator or a fed and you are a genuine you know left-leaning person and you and you and you fall into adventurism you need to start looking at your conditions as they are instead of as the history that you read or that or as the theory that you read you have to apply that theory to what's going on right now don't apply what's going on right now to your theory you know don't get it yeah backwards. that's a really great point mm-hmm. um um, and I think in the essay, they make a really good point about how these tendencies often result uh, from these kind of parties, these vanguard parties and these organizations uh, kind of being composed primarily by students. Um, and I think there, this really opens up an interesting conversation about what it means to be uh, kind of the vanguard of the party. Uh, and we know that students are extremely important for uh you know, galvanizing participation in these organizations. Uh, but ultimately, there is this kind of like, uh, they call it like the petite bourgeoisie. There's this like tendency for individualism and sanctimony to persist within students because many students are, you know, in universities and colleges, they're striving for some kind of economic mobilization. Uh, but in, you know, in that process and inherent in that institution is a, a desire to distance yourself from the working class when the purpose of these organizations, you know, on paper is supposed to be connected. Uh, with the working class. So I think the the, converse, the the kind of contradiction to square here is like, what are the kind of advantages, but also uh, major organizing disadvantages that occur when students try to be the vanguard or to try to uh, make sure that they meet the needs of the working class without having to uh, kind of like be disconnected from them, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're very much ends up becoming, I, I think, from my view, like only organizing like within yourself, you know, like they're not mm-hmm. going into their communities and they push the party line before meeting their needs. And, you know, a right. lot of people will say they don't care about what you have to say if they're hungry, you know, so you have to mm-hmm. work your way up from there. And then also um, a huge issue with so-called left organizations like, you know, DSA, like someone posted a video from like a convention from there i think and every video from every dsa convention i've seen come out has been very cringeworthy for me but <laughs> someone <laughs> but someone made this point they they tried to push this agenda right of trying to form a revolutionary organization to help win socialism but then a speaker in the audience came up and they were concerned with breaking away from the democratic line. Like 
they right. they didn't want to break away from like the Democratic Party or whatever. And that that kind of stuck out to me because like what has DSA been really doing with their organization? They've just been trying to elect Democrats. Mm-hmm. Right. And so even with an organization like that, with 70,000 members, I think, but there's still nothing concrete to come out of that kind of membership because they're all so busy just going in circles. Yeah, it's almost like a form of mental gymnastics where they convince themselves that they're you know, more revolutionary than they are because they have the word socialists in their name. But then they end up working their way back into some kind of a logical justification for working within the system. So it's like, like these ideas and concepts uh, just function as a fad or a trend or like a thought experiment, which really reveals the disconnect that uh, students in particular seem to be uh, experiencing with regards to the working class. That when, when we think about like revolutionary theory, and especially in context of, of practice, as Mao says, um, you know, we have to consider the relationships between the ideas of the working class, where they came from, how we go about concentrating them, and then making sure that they uh, become kind of like the mass line, the articulation of the theory that unites uh, the working class uh, into a body politic. But what happens with these students is that because they are fundamentally disconnected uh, from the material reality that impacts the vast majority of people, they find that they have to end up working again uh, within the system and justify it through things like pragmatism. Uh, you know, like we have to work with what we have rather than to try to push for an alternative based on the analysis that we kind of look at. And I think that kind of presents uh, an interesting question, um, not just for students, but I guess in general, when we think about the question of like dogmatism. So there's this really uh, pertinent debate, I guess, especially for Asian Americans, where we have this new pejorative, or I guess not that new, but like relatively new uh, pejorative of the tanky, right? The tanky is the Marxist-Leninist who unadulteratedly supports, you know, uh, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but I, the, you know, inherent within that pejorative is like a, is a nugget of truth, which is how do we resolve the contradiction that is presented there? Like we, we see that these countries, um, you know, are big players on, on the world stage. They have goals of achieving communism by X, Y, Z date, um, you know, but they, they are, you know, crippled by these criticisms of like authoritarianism, of tyranny, of, you know, being closer to the Nazi party than, than, uh, you know, other quote unquote democratic countries. Like, how do we oh, resolve this situation um, where, you know, we can make critiques of these countries, but also, um, you know, critically support them? What does it mean to like critically support an example of uh, a real existing socialism rather than this like thought experiment that exists like as a pie in the sky? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's an excellent question that we've got to learn to answer because like when it comes to supporting things like, um, the people's Republic of China, you know, I think we have to be, we really just have to start recognizing their flaws a little bit more, I think, because like, like, um, for example, China has always had like God awful foreign policy, you know? Absolutely. Um, like especially during the Sino-Soviet split, too, you know, supporting the supporting the Khmer Rouge just because the Soviets were against them, or mm-hmm. supporting or opposing um the revolutions going on on the African continent just because China or the Soviet Union was backing them or stuff like that, you know. So I think it has right. to be 
we have to be honest with ourselves that like all these countries that we valorize and all these revolutionaries that we valorize today, they still weren't perfect, you know, and they probably mm-hmm. would have said and done a lot of things that we disagreed with, but we just don't see it because, you know, sometimes hindsight isn't twenty twenty, and things get lost to the passage of time. But um, yeah, I think we just have to be really open and honest about what these countries are doing wrong. And then also, and then objectively look at what they're doing right in terms of how they're meeting their own people's needs and how they are trying to prolong the success of the revolution. Um, right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a really good point. Um, I mean, and that's kind of the, the major issue with dogmatism and leftist spaces now is that there is, you know, so much almost like, how do I put it? Like insecurity almost like there's an insecurity for a person who is uh, associated with leftist ideas for them being called out being like, oh, so like you're a communist, right? So does that mean that you support like the detention camps in China or do you support like the re-education camps in Vietnam? Like um, these, these individuals want like a perfect revolution. They want a perfect idealization of a utopia that can be achieved that didn't have to do any of the messy hard work that is required for you to be historically successful. They, they want an experiment uh, that existed on some island somewhere like 2000 years ago. And they kind of like hailed that as the, the perfect idea. But I think inherent to caring about socialism as a scientific method is to see the experiments that have gone well and then look at their successes, but also critically analyze, you know, their, their failures um, use their tactics and try to apply them to the situations that we live in now. But to to kind of pander to this idea that we need like a perfect revolution is is extremely you know antithetical to what we're trying to do. Yeah, um, you know, so when people ask you, you know, oh, so you're this, so does me support this? Well, you should be ready to answer um, yes, because here's X, Y, and Z reason, or here's no X, Y, and reason xyz reason you know and if you don't support something mm-hmm. that a socialist project is doing um you know you need to be able to analyze it in the framework that hey mistakes are going to be made you know these people are trying mm-hmm. something that the rest of the world has still yet to successfully attempt you know like we, we criticize china a lot right but they're still further along than us in my opinion because what they, at least they've had a successful revolution you know, mm. they're they're applying a lot of Marxist-Leninist principles um, today, and I think we need to just look at it in that framework. That yet, yeah, hey, this is still an experiment. A lot of things are going to be done wrong, um, like you know the the re-education centers in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Mm-hmm. Like you know, I have a I have a mutual who's a Hui Muslim. And they don't agree with the re-education centers because, you know, it's a very basic principle that people aren't going to accept education if they didn't chase it themselves. Exactly. In theory, you know, this de-radicalization thing is a good thing because what's the alternative to combating terrorism? You have to combat it violently. You know, obviously, I guess the People's Republic of China prefer does not prefer that option you know compared to like the united states which has waged Mm -hmm. a so-called war on terror for like a decade now and has killed 
more innocent people than combatants, probably. Um, not probably, definitely. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So we have to, instead of being on the defensive, right, we have to tell people, yeah, it's a mess. That's just what's going to happen. And we should criticize mm -hmm. it. But that doesn't mean we should just cancel this entire this project entirely and go back to square one because then mm -hmm. we're never going to get anywhere, you know? So we right, just have to right. be that's, open and that's honest. Like the, that's like the ultra-left tendency is to look at these examples and find like isolated moments of weakness or mistakes and condemn the entire project entirely. Um, and then I the thing that I hate even more is this like criticism, especially by liberals. Um, like I know John Oliver made this word really popular. It's like whataboutism, right? Is that yeah. these countries uh, can be condemned, uh, but you can't bring the kind of spotlight back onto America or like onto the heart of empire and say that they have done things that are worse. Like there's no such thing as a comparative analysis in the current political moment. You can't compare uh, two countries and say that one is better because then you'll be accused of like whataboutism. Um, you have to always be speaking on the defensive when defending a, a, like a communist project and always be speaking in praise when talking about like, you know, America and the freedoms that are inherent to democracy or uh, bourgeoisie capitalism or whatever. Like it's a silly trap for us to fall into to think that like we have to, um, you know, be one or the other. We can defend a, a critical support of these countries without saying that we support every single project that they have done. Um, but I mean, ultimately, it, like to a lot of the people who are arguing these things, it's just a thought experiment. You know, it's just like a, a thing to think about uh, when they're daydreaming during the day, um, you know, in their penthouse or whatever, without realizing that like the tactics and the lessons of these these countries that we are critically supporting offer us a lesson in the kinds of things that we should be looking at when trying to build a revolutionary coalition in the states here. Yeah, definitely. Like this is not you know this is not something you sit back and just think about like these are these things that we're thinking about are being put into practice in real life they're affecting real people it's affecting what's going on in the world so we have to you know we have to put ourselves in that mindset you know like this isn't theoretical anymore like people are trying to do these things we need to mm -hmm. hmm, we need to Mm, let's see how, how can i say this without repeating myself you know like <laughs> <laughs> you know like it's just it's just more you know being open and honest about what's being done wrong what's being done correctly and then weighing like how much of it was correct and how much of it was wrong you know like we have to weigh it and then at the end of the day we have to make sure that it's still something that we're willing to move forward with and should move forward with um you know because like nothing is ever going to be perfect you know like mm -hmm. you know like this critique of sectarianism dogmatism and ultra leftism right it had its own detractors too um no, I mean, that's, that's totally fair. Uh, yeah. In the essay itself, they, they talk about, you know, the, the harm of, of dogma. They quote Mao when he says that dogma or the idea of like a perfect revolution where we can just copy and paste it is more useless than dog shit because at least like dog shit can fertilize the fields and like with a dog, you have a companion, you know, but dogma doesn't help anybody. It just, uh, it doesn't even work as an organizing principle. It's just like a book club idea for people to chat about while drinking their coffee. Um, 
Um, and I think that's a quote here that I think is really important when we consider like what critical support means and, and trying to be uh, not dogmatic. And I'll just read it now. Um, to be a Marxist-Leninist is to appreciate the grave problems faced uh, by the Soviet Union. And I guess we can use the example of China here. Uh, by the Soviet Union or China in its first years and to understand that the policies followed to build socialism under such nearly impossible conditions necessarily produces a distorted form of socialism. And further to understand that there was no realistic possibility that much more could be hoped for and that in spite of all problems, great world-shattering contributions to the revolutionization of the world were achieved by the Soviets during those years. It is to understand that the vicious anti-communist propaganda that the ruling class will necessarily put out, which may or may not have a kernel of truth about any socialist country which is threatening it, and honestly and forthrightly reject any inherent internalized prejudices, refusing to let them color our current perceptions, and above all, refuse to pander to popular anti-communism when winning people to Marxist-Leninist politics. And I think Asada Shakur also has a really good quote about this too. She says, um, you know, you never let anyone choose your enemies for you. You have to choose them yourself. I think what really happens in the United States, especially given kind of like the uh, popular sentiment of anti-communism and the propaganda that's inherent to villainizing these countries is our enemies are chosen for us. We're told, you know, um, you know, in this current like economic crisis or uh, COVID that, you know, China is to blame, you know, and we don't know why that is unless we investigate it. And when you investigate it, it's because, you know, the United States is facing an economic crisis of its own and needs to find a scapegoat to point to. And so we need to be able to look at these very clear material conditions and make an objective assessment rather than just being fed lines from the State Department telling us that we should, you know, get ready for a, for a war with China. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing too, right? We have to encourage people to learn how to connect the dots and like take away the stigma of like being a conspiracy theorist or whatever, because, you know, because like, like what? Um, like a couple of years ago, or was it last year? I don't know. Time is kind of all blurring together, but like, <laughs> a, like you know, a couple, like a few weeks after um, Trump started his little trade war with China, right? Like right after it originally started, that's when you started getting all these new this this news about the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region coming out, and mm-hmm. and even back then I didn't draw that connection, but of course I do now. That um. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't really think about what kind of ulterior motive there is to churning out all this anti-communist propaganda. They just think that, right. oh, it's bad because it's, you know, it's bad because my my principles. It's bad because so. it's bad. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so people don't really think about that, you know, like who, who, who stands to benefit from what you think. Um. You know, like a lot of people, a lot of Americans are conscious, right? That like their own media will lie to them about what's going on domestically, but they don't put together whose interests it may serve when the media lies about what's going on in another country that you've never been to, you know? Right. Like we, we've seen it again and again, the kind of who stands to benefit when America lies about another country and that people believe it. You know, like people bring up the example a lot, right? Oh my God, imagine if Twitter existed in 2002. Saddam has WMDs. Why is nobody talking about this? Blah, blah, blah. You know, and <laughs> people are still, people are still falling into that trap. And yep. we need to encourage like, 
I think we need to take criticism of the US media even further from okay, you're being deceived about what's going on in your home. What makes you think they're going to be truthful about what's going on in someone else's house, especially when the news about it is like really, really bad? Because, um, especially when it comes to like this term tanky, right? Like, we need, I think we need to kind of redefine what it means. It's just like this, this phrase has so much baggage associated with it, but to, we, we need to look at it as just an identification of a sum of a person who takes the information that is given to them by the United States with like a critical lens with like a very very large heaping of salt you know they stand to benefit from us being uh disillusioned with other countries so there's no reason for us to just wholly buy into the kinds of myths that they're espousing especially when it's like these vague notions of authoritarianism of uh quote-unquote human rights violations it lends itself to people like human rights watch who kind of run around doing the state department's work for them criticizing countries and saying that like you know bad things are happening but there's always a very specific like ideological bent to these countries that they never want to suggest, which is that like, you know, we stand to gain from them, you know, collapsing or whatever, like in Bolivia where, you know, Elon Musk was going to fucking raid it for uh, medals or whatever. And we declare their elections uh, undemocratic and say yeah. that they are authoritarian. Um, you know, like there's, there's material interests that are always to be gained uh, when we espouse these myths about these countries. It's it's ultimately a question of geopolitical convenience. Like what does America, the empire, stand to gain from all of us believing the horseshit that they talk about? Yeah. And um, you know, as of this week, what the China has sanctioned Lockheed Martin and they it looks like they're moving to nationalize their rare their rare earths industry, right? So we we have to keep an eye out for what's gonna come out afterwards because of those kind of, that kind of those events you know like no event that we're going to see come out right now exists in a vacuum it always has a purpose and it's meant to try and fulfill that purpose um you know like we get made fun of a lot right for like calling out like cia propaganda and stuff like that as if like what <laughs> right. cia exists to you know fill a cubicle or something no like everything that we call out the cia for doing right they have already admitted it. Like, why are we being called conspiracy theorists when you can literally go to the CIA's website, go into their search bar, look up a certain country, and then like find out all the things that they did like 20 years ago in that country? Yeah, I mean, oh, like the actions of Coetzel Pro and regime change, you can literally see like on Wikipedia. Like there's a Wikipedia article that's like regime change initiated by the US government in other countries. And it's like, like a bajillion... Um, subheaders long because you know the the history of american intervention in these uh these nations is is ridiculous and there's no reason to suggest that that isn't happening now as well oh yeah definitely like it's kind of like you know that you know that meme like where they like take like screen screen caps from like spongebob you know and it's like spongebob like pulling off the wallpaper and it's like dirty diapers everywhere you know that's literally yeah. somebody asking somebody calling you a conspiracy theorist and then you just pull out the wallpaper and there's all these things that the government has done to other people around the world and things that they've done to their right. own people you know like mm -hmm. like people act like um at people exceptionalize all these think horrible things that united states has done you know and it's under the guise of like bringing attention to a certain horrible thing like um like mk ultra and stuff like that right and when these all these things get ex exceptionalized 
people don't start putting together that like hey why the fuck does the government keep doing this but it but then when we all find out about something it gets exceptionalized and each thing that we find out just exists separately from each other you know there's no like connecting the dots there's no right um realizing that the government is a repeat offender uh, and doing like horrible terrible things to people um god this yeah, is it's, not, it's not the exception it's the rule yep yeah and now here's my actual conspiracy theory they probably attached a stigma to being conspiracy theorist for the express purpose of this you know like people you i don't know if i want to call it gaslighting but then you know it makes people feel like they're crazy for draw for drawing connections and stuff like that mm. i think um to try yeah and keep, it's keep wild happy. because it's mm-hmm institutions have monopolized the notion of conspiracy theory so like it's crazy because i'll talk to some you know friends from back home like from way back in the day when i was a kid or whatever and a lot of them have hopped onto like the conspiracy theory train and it's so ridiculous that they approximate like ideas of like anti-imperialism and like u.s empire consolidation of power by the right etc that like these politicians kind of run the game Um, monopoly capitalists have formed oligarchy within you know current american institutions but then it they hit they get so close it's like an asymptote of the ideas that they reach and then it just veers hard right to like uh like the illuminati's behind everything yeah and it's like fucking hell. like you're so close <laughs> it's like it's like you know like okay people are just slowly starting to come to the realization that, that the rich and powerful they're all in a big club and we're not in it right but then mm-hmm. they start drawing all these connections to how they how capitalism has become monopolistic and stuff like that and then it veers off into all of these people all must be like subterranean reptile people or whatever the fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, you were there. Go go back to they they're they're people with just inhumane interests, but they're still people with just with a lot yeah. of wealth and power that they got from usurping and from the rest of us. Like there that's all there is to it. Um <laughs> it's it's horrible man it's really demoralizing to think that like people can get so close and then just go so far off yeah and then and then because people will continue to go so far off like that right you can't there's no matter what batshit crazy conspiracy theory someone has come up with there's a chance that the government has already done something crazier so then you can't even bring that stuff up, right? Like someone's talking about Illuminati. You're gonna be grouped into the in, you're gonna be grouped into the same thing with them when you bring up about how the CIA tried to train people in astral projection for this for the purpose of spiritual warfare. You can't talk about that because then you're gonna like, <laughs> And that's a thing they actually did, but then you can't you can't even discuss it because then they'll 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 be convinced it actually didn't happen because of all these other crazier theories going around. Exactly. And oh, even man. yeah, it really puts you in a blind spot for sure. You can't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess my last question that we can probably leave off uh, for today is this notion of the petite bourgeoisie. Um, I know, like, for example, a lot of the listeners of this podcast are, you know, Asian Americans are kind of trying to find their political bearings, distrustful of the American empire, but not exactly on board with, you know, um, you know, Marxist Leninism as an ideology. They don't subscribe to these ideas yet. Um, usually like white collar, et cetera. Um, 
So, like, what is the role of um, the petite bourgeoisie? This class of people who, you know, clearly aren't billionaires. They don't hold the reins of power, but they, you know, are not the working class. That they, you know, participate in the institutions that exist. They vote, etc. Um, they see that there are problems, but they don't know uh, where to go from here. And you know, like, how do we, how do we see their role in the revolutionary? The way I see it is that, like, you know, like, again, like, we're in a very unique situation, unlike any other country that's undergone a revolution already, right? Yeah, I mean, it is a tough question. I don't think yeah. any of us really know the answer. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, I mean, I think in the essay, they, they point to some of these, like, personal tendencies that uh, these individuals have, which I thought was extremely illuminating, because it was almost like a psychoanalysis of, of what it means to be upwardly mobile within capitalism, which is like, there are these, you know, preconditions for success when you are a student or you're trying to move up in the supply chain in a corporation or you're trying to move up within, you know, the tenure track in academia is you are embedded with these characteristics, these personality traits of like individualism, of competition, that you have to undercut other people to be able to get to the top, to have your uh, kind of economic class position settled and, uh, you know, solidified, even if you... Uh, align ideologically with the working class, you still see reform as, you know, a potential for making uh, material benefits for people. Um, and I guess what needs to be kind of reckoned with is that these individuals don't recognize that those tendencies of individualism, of competition, of, you know, like Darwinism, of natural selection, etc., are only because we exist within capitalism, that these are tendencies that exist to you know, allow for the capitalists, the capitalists to kind of justify their, uh, you know, monopolization of capital, of their over, um, you know, like their ridiculous quantities of wealth. When we actually look at the contrast, which is the working class has historically always benefited from working together, from altruism, from unions, you know, allowing for things like collective bargaining, that there is a vast majority of this country who saw their life standards improved dramatically because they came together. And I think that's a lesson to kind of like take into account when it comes to these individuals, the petite bourgeoisie, is that we have much more to gain by working with each other and by, you know, forming a body politic that is on the same page about what needs to be done in this country than we are to think that we are going to benefit from trying to strive to becoming a billionaire. Because in all honesty, all of us are much closer to being evicted, to facing a housing crisis, to end up homeless on the street begging at an intersection, then we are ever going to be uh, close to becoming a billionaire. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's a really great point. Um, so then I guess we, when, you know, the petite bourgeoisie, right, they have to think about being part of that class, what those class interests will entail. And when you achieve upward mobility, they should think about their prospering comes at whose expense, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it, you have to begin a process of tr starting to try to betray your class interests because, you know, like the person above you, they got from where they were because they stepped on the people that are currently below you right now, you know? You're still closer to the people that are considered below you than the people you consider above you when you're in that class, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. So find it in yourself to really think about 
all these things that you're chasing, at whose expense is it coming? I, I guess is um, what my thoughts on that are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think moving forward, we should just like the movement, the the you know revolutionary moment needs to be more welcoming of class traders. We should encourage more people to betray their class interests. Um, and I think that's going to be a really, if we can get a lot of people to do that, um, you know, I think we'll have a much stronger foothold on making sure that an organization, a united front is ready when the next revolutionary moment comes. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I, this entire discussion has just made me think back to that one uh, Sheikh Wavada quote, um, which was, I envy you, you North Americans. Uh, you're very lucky. You are fighting the most important fight of all. You live in the heart of the beast. Um, mm-hmm. And I live with that every single day because, you know, you know, that's where we are. We are living. I don't know. It feels like we're like inside the final boss, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, as that's much exactly time- right. Yeah. So as much as we think about like what all these other countries are doing, right? Think about how much more they could have succeeded had this beast that we're living inside of had been defeated first. Um, mm-hmm. So we have to think about like more than all this other struggles of other people and more than whether or not what these people are doing like fits inside our own ideological lines we have to think about what's keeping them from being successful. And the real thing is, is that like, we just aren't doing enough to attack this beast that we're living inside of right now. And it, we have mm-hmm. to focus, concentrate our efforts on the kind of mess that's going to come out of this right now and how to resolve them instead of, you know, armchairing about whether or not XYZ country is being ideologically pure. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really great point that we can probably end on too is, you know, being within the heart of empire means that we have a lot of responsibility, you know, to try to do what we can to to make sure that the success of other countries, of other socialist projects can can face the least amount of repression as possible. I think that kind of gives a call to action to a lot of people who are listening is to try to find a way to, you know, destroy it from the inside. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Thanks for chatting with me, Mike. Good to have you back on. Yeah. Thanks for having me back on too.